2: America has witnessed some astonishing acts of moral courage and of cowardice since George Floyd died on a street corner in South Minneapolis on Memorial Day. But few have been more consequential than Darnella Frazier's instinct to do what all 17-year-olds do, pull out her phone and post a video. Darnella filmed the final minutes of George Floyd's life as officer Derek Chauvin pinned him to the street outside Cup Foods. If it wasn't for me, four cops would have still had their jobs, she later wrote on Facebook. Each year, around a thousand Americans are killed by police. For young African-American men, police are among the leading causes of death. With 150 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will police violence against black Americans end? It's not the first time a video of white police mistreating a black American has triggered protests and rioting in American cities. But away from the cameras, Serious attempts to improve policing have been made across the US. In this episode, we'll look at how effective those have been, look at the history of race and law and order in electoral politics, and figure out who the politics of police versus protest might favour in 2020. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the Economist's Washington correspondent, and Charlotte Howard, the New York Bureau Chief. Charlotte, how has this week gone for you?
3: It was a distressing week for obvious reasons. I'm not in New York City. I'm about 20 miles outside, but I have a family that remains in the city. And uh, the protests there, many of them, as we all know, were peaceful, and some of them became violent and destructive. So that was, of course. Hard to watch, but it was also inspiring to see the many New Yorkers of all different races who came out on the streets to voice their protest against the killing of George Floyd.
4: John, How about you? I agree with Charlotte that it's been quite a distressing week um, as you know i've been living for the past few months with an unwell relative, so i wasn't able to attend any of the protests, but i've been glued to Twitter for the past eight days. I write about police reform as often as I can and sometimes the issues I write about can seem a bit abstract. This week, they were visceral. You saw police who had no interest in de-escalation. You saw police who were armed with military weapons. And you saw police looking more like an occupying army than like peace officers. Um, and that's what I wrote about this week. And that's what I've been thinking about.
2: Well, John, Charlotte and I are always glad to have you as a colleague, but particularly glad this week, because for listeners who wouldn't know, you are something of an expert on police reform. You've written a book that's coming out soon on policing and technology. You've written three pages in this week's issue of The Economist on how to fix American policing. What have you learned over the past week while you've been doing the reporting for that story?
4: Well, it was striking to me that this started in Minneapolis because Minneapolis actually does not have a bad reputation as a police department. There is an academic, probably the most knowledgeable academic on policing and police reform in America is named Philip Atiba Goff. He runs the Center for Policing Equity at NYU, and he has worked extensively with the Minneapolis Police Department to try to reduce the use of force incidents and improve data collection so that police can know better what they're doing. I also spoke with Janae Harteau, who's the former chief of the Minneapolis Police Department, and she made a big push to make the department more diverse. And in fact, I think about a fifth of the department is people of color and about 15% of the officers are women. And yet you still saw Derek Chauvin, the officer, behave the way he did, choked George Floyd to death. So it was a sort of visceral reminder that reform is grinding and difficult and requires the buy-in of officers and senior officers at every single level. I had a long and intense phone call with Chief Harteau and I wanted to play you some of what she said when I called her. Like so many Americans, she was really angry and frustrated about the death of George Floyd.
0: Watching the murder of George Floyd was horrifying for me. Just to watch as a human being, if it doesn't shock you to your core, then I question if you are human. That it was at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer and three that stood by and, and didn't intervene. That's just so disheartening, knowing all the work that we've done, you know, over the years, just to make change, to build relations, to really protect and serve our communities. It made me begin to question everything I've ever known. I feel like I've watched my life's work go up in smoke.
4: She was very clear about how policing needs to change. And there are three things that she said needed looking at. The first is the power of police unions. And these unions occupy a position in American life unlike any other union. They benefit because Republicans are generally unwilling to criticize the police, and Democrats are touchy about criticizing unions. Police chiefs often don't have the power to fire bad officers because of these unions.
0: I just received a letter. The first words from the union president to the rank and file is an absolute disgrace. No denouncing the actions of the officers. Basically doing an us versus them saying, we are the only ones that are supporting you and Talking about George Floyd's criminal history, whether he has one or not, has nothing to do with his murder. This is, makes cops afraid to step out, to be able to stand up. And we've got a lot of young officers that are coming on these departments, and they're afraid of a lack of support. People have got to know that police unions have more influence on culture than a police chief ever will, because unions are there always. They should not be supporting bad cops or bad yes. actions. And I say right now, the union, if you can't speak out over George Floyd's murder, then when can you?
4: Chief Harto is also very interesting about how the culture of policing should change. And that's partly through better hiring, but also by having early warning systems for bad behavior and crucially providing mental health support. You know, police officers deal with call after call, shooting after shooting, often with only a couple of hours of sleep in between, with no opportunity to sort of check yourself in that situation. She says a vicious cycle can develop that can lead to alcoholism and worse.
0: I think people forget that the makeup of an officer isn't simply in their job. It isn't right. just when they go to work and put on their uniform. It's what they grew up with. It's what they're around when they get home. It's how they think. And when I looked at Officer Shaban, I see him, and he looked dead inside. He knows he's on
2: videotape.
0: Yeah. He knows he has a body camera on and there's audio on the body camera. He never yeah. said a word. He was very calm. But when I looked in his eyes, nobody was there.
4: Yeah.
0: I thought to myself, what's going on in your life?
4: Chief Harto's last point was probably her most powerful, though. It's about what the rest of us need to do.
0: Who has the ability and the authority and the means to start to make change? We absolutely have to make change in the police culture. But there's so many other things. It begins with the conversations we have at home. I have a brown daughter. We're always having the conversation. But it seems like other people aren't having the conversation so much. Yeah. And we have to remember that we're all human beings. And police officers, that might be a job you do, but that is not entirely who you are. I don't need policies or laws to tell me that I shouldn't hurt somebody or put my knee on their neck until they can no longer breathe. I'm just angry that it's Minneapolis that's what we're known for now. I hope to God that we can take this and do something globally really good because of it. Otherwise, shame on all of us.
2: Well, John, thank you for that. That was fascinating. There's been a juxtaposition, hasn't there, over the past week of police brutality, beginning with Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd and some of the very heavy-handed policing in response to the protests and some of the unrest, which you've written about this week. But also, you've seen in some American cities police chiefs marching with protesters. You've seen people like the police chief in Houston, Acevedo, come out very strongly and make you know very powerful statements about the meaning of George Floyd's murder. So while perhaps the news pictures at the moment are largely focused on police brutality, there's more to police behaviour. Well there has been more to police behaviour this week than than just that. There are also a lot of police chiefs like Chief Harto out there who are absolutely furious about what happened in Minnesota.
4: Yeah, there have been a number of police chiefs who have condemned the killing of George Floyd, and that was not terribly surprising. I think chiefs, for the most part, get to where they are because they know policing really well, and they know that sort of policing, that sort of behavior – In addition to being morally abhorrent, is counterproductive and leaves the city less safe. It poisons relations between the community. What surprised me is the number of police unions that came out and said that what happened to George Floyd should never have happened and the officer was wrong. Usually unions are extremely reluctant to criticize rank and file police officers anywhere. So those two things were surprising. You also saw, as you pointed out, chiefs in a number of cities joining the marches. I had a long conversation with the police chief in Camden, New Jersey, who joined the march, went out to talk to the marchers and ended up marching with them. And he said, now as his officers drive around, he and residents of Camden flash the peace sign to each other. So if you're a chief who really is concerned about community relations, there's a way to use what has just happened to improve them. And I think you've seen a few chiefs who are very forward thinking do that.
3: Yes, You have seen a a really admirable response from some police chiefs, but just to ground our discussion in some of the statistics, which remain devastating, about 1,000 Americans a year over the past four years were killed in an altercation with police. And African Americans are about three times as likely to be killed from police than white people are, even though those Black Americans are less likely to be armed. John Priddo earlier mentioned that for young men of color, police use of force is among the leading causes of death. And it's important to point out, as John Fassman does in his piece this week, that systemic racism doesn't mean that all police officers are racists or bad people. Instead, it means that the system is designed and operates in a way that is racially biased, regardless of an individual police officer's motivation and if you think about some of the things that chief harto raised um as well as others in the in the way that it's very hard to fire bad police officers that police officers operate within a sort of culture of impunity both because of collective bargaining rules also because of this symbiotic relationship between police and prosecutors in which prosecutors need police to help bring convictions and in return they're sort of deferential to police qualified immunity. It's really hard to bring civil action against police. There are all these ways in which the system is designed to operate in a way that is indeed racially biased. And so the behavior of some police chiefs and the acknowledgement of this systemic racism is a huge leap forward, but still that systemic racism does exist.
2: And can I ask you something about what doesn't work in police reform, John? Because When I was living in Washington in 2014, 2015, you had the deaths in police custody of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, other high profile cases that led to some of the same calls for police reform that we're seeing now. And one of the hopes at the time, perhaps naively, was that there might be some technological fix, that body cameras might be the fix. That hasn't happened. It hasn't done the trick. Why not? Well,
4: you saw Derek Chauvin, as he choked George Floyd to death, knew he was on camera, on multiple cameras. After Michael Brown died, his family called for every officer to wear a body cam. I think that's a good start. But unless police officers know that they will face serious consequences for malfeasance, then body cams can only go so far. So they have to know that if they use force unjustly, that they will get in trouble within their department, that they will face consequences for their career, and that they may be prosecuted. And without that, body cams are not much use. The
3: main result of body cams, as I can tell so far, is to mobilize support for additional police reform. That the evidence that is so impossible to ignore of an, an image of an of a person dying from the hands of police then mobilizes a much broader constituency for change. It is worth pointing out, though, that after Michael Brown, the teenager in Ferguson, was killed, there were body cams, of course, but then the Obama administration did either escalate reforms that had started or introduce new changes. These included things like putting police departments that violated constitutional rights under consent decrees that were monitored by courts, There was a voluntary reform program in cooperation with the federal government. There was also limits that were put in place on a program that essentially transfers extra military gear, like grenade launchers, bayonets, to local police departments. Trump has reversed each of those things. And so there were reforms that were getting going after the death of Michael Brown. And Trump has taken steps to either reverse or limit their impact. And that, I think, does send a clear signal to police departments around the country, even if, as John Fassman points out, law enforcement remains a very local concern. You know, There are 18,000 law enforcement agencies, and most of them are, are small. But that signal from the federal government is quite strong.
2: John, we've mainly been talking so far about how you change police departments so you don't get things like Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd. However, there's been another aspect of American policing on display this week, which has been the very heavy handed use of force in crowd control, you know, use of rubber bullets, pepper spray, etc. Can we talk a little bit about that as well? Is that part of the same problem or is that a discrete problem? I mean, I suppose you could bracket them together in the group of you know, excessive use of force militarization of the police, training that encourages a sort of warrior culture. But actually, is that a separate problem? And does it have separate solutions? Or is it part and parcel of the same thing that we've been talking about?
4: What I've seen is I've watched police in New York, in Chicago, and elsewhere, crack down on peaceful protesters, is an attitude that prizes compliance over safety. And I think that's a huge problem. I think the police are there to ensure that people are safe and to ensure that streets are safe. But what I've seen is police that just want to be obeyed immediately before anything else. And when they're not obeyed, they resort to violence. I think that's a huge problem in how police conceive their mission.
2: Thanks both. We'll take a historical view on all this in just a moment. But first, I should let listeners know about the place to go to get a discounted Economist subscription. It's economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You're missing out on some wonderful writing and analysis in this week's paper and online if you don't subscribe already. On China and Hong Kong, on the virology of COVID, there's also a powerful obituary of George Floyd. The link again is economist.com 2020 election pod. You can find it in the show notes to this episode. A 100,000 Americans are dead from a new virus. Spaceflight is demonstrating American ingenuity. But in cities across the country, protests sparked by racial injustice are showing an ugly side of America to the world. In November, voters face a choice between an uninspiring vice president running for the Democrats and a Republican promising to get tough on the protests.
5: It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. That was 1968.
2: The parallels with today are striking, but there's a lot that's different, too. Khalil Gibran Mohammed is professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School.
1: This week has been quite striking for some differences that stood out to me as compared to similarities in the past. And I make that distinction because the killing of George Floyd brought to mind very specific similarities. But the protests that have unfolded look different than I think in the past. We really don't have a precedent for not only the scale of white participation, but also the diversity of whites who are actively engaged in particularly the daytime, quote-unquote, peaceful protest activities. That is just remarkably and strikingly different than what we saw, for the most part, in the Ferguson and Ferguson-inspired protests of 2014 and 15. And we'd have to go back to 1968 in northern cities like Chicago to see the intersection of anti-war protesters and other radicals, as well as Black power and civil rights protesters. But that was not as broad a demographic of middle class, of professional, of gentrifying whites, as one community organizer told me on the ground in Minneapolis. So I'd say this week has been more different than anything I've seen or studied with regard to the response to the killing of George Floyd. White residents of these cities, the ones who are joining these protests, have skin in the game. They want to some degree to live in peace with their Black and brown neighbors. And for those who had been willing to call the police for noise ordinances and such, like we hear a lot about in Brooklyn and other places, maybe George Floyd was a tipping point. Now they're finally hearing their Black neighbors and saying, this is why we don't handle our differences uh, with the police. The other trend is that the Southern strategy of explicit racialization of Black protest and dissent that took root in the Nixon administration, but that had been unfolding for decades prior to that, is also in reverse. We've tapped out of the notion that we could lock up as many Black people as possible in the United States. The retreat from mass incarceration has been a bipartisan project for more than a decade now. And while there's most certainly a strong appetite within the Trump administration and his core base for continuing the same, that really doesn't reflect the mood of the country. And so while there aren't a lot of ardent people who are willing to lay down their bodies to do criminal justice reform, it's still something that is an uphill battle. There are far, far more people willing to accept that it's a problem and it needs active engagement. You also had people that were very fine
0: people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you.
1: So because of the extreme articulated racism within the Trump administration, a lot of people have been convinced that this is what systemic racism looks like and have opened themselves up either to learning directly from their Black allies or from history or some other source. Nixon had been a moderate supporter of civil rights activists as a vice president for Eisenhower and ran uh, against Kennedy in the 60 election uh, as someone who had pretty decent civil rights record. Uh, so, so Nixon had to move to the right, so to speak, uh, in a way that Trump <laughs> did not. <laughs> so, so Nixon managed, in a way, to look much more like a moderate centrist president, whether he carried the label of Democrat or Republican.
5: And Madam President, we have
1: predators on our streets looking back from today, than, say, even Joe Biden. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Whose record of criminalization and crime policy and incarceration, I mean, his actual record in calling for mass incarceration policies in the 1990s... We have no choice but to take them out of society. ...were, by the standards of Richard Nixon, even more significant and more anti-Black.
2: Charlotte, the similarities between Donald Trump uh, now and Richard Nixon's candidacy in 68 on the surface are quite striking, aren't they? I mean, Trump keeps channeling Nixon in his Twitter feed, talking about a silent majority, being the law and order president, and all that sort of thing. But one big difference with Nixon in 68 is Trump is the incumbent now, whereas Nixon in 68 was the challenger. And I think running on a law and order message when you're already the incumbent... I think is is trickier than what Nixon was trying to do and did successfully in 68.
3: Yeah, I really agree with that. It's harder for Trump to do that because as you say, he's the incumbent and because he tweets things like when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Um, So he's presiding over this mayhem. I also think that there's a big difference in talking about law and order now versus talking about law and order then because you're wondering what, that system of law and order looks like? What is the system of justice that we're talking about? And it's pretty obvious now, and activists within the Black Lives Matter movement have done a good job in making clear, complemented by reams of academic research, that the system of law and order as it exists today, whether it's through sentencing, through stop and frisk, police violence has shown a pattern of targeting Black people in a way that is not a fair and even application of the law. And so for Trump, there obviously is a clear decline of law and order when there is looting. And reformers to the police system have argued vocally against looting, of course. But there's a question of when you have law and order restored, do you want law and order to actually be something that implies justice in a more even manner. And I think among the African American community, but a much broader set of people as well, there's an understanding that the definition of law and order needs to
4: shift. I think that's exactly right. I think one big change between 1968 and now is that this is just a much less white country than it was. And for far too many non-white Americans, law and order means a heavy dose of order without much protection from the law. Between 2003 and 2019, 7,663 people were killed by police across America. But just 95 police officers were charged in those killings, and only 48 convicted. And what made the reaction to Derek Chauvin so unusual is that he was in fact charged with murder. Most people weren't. So for a lot of people, when they hear law and order, what they hear is what Donald Trump seems to be implying by it, which is let the police do what they want, stay out of their way, and don't question them. That won't fly now.
2: All right, thank you both. We'll hear from one of the cities on the front line of the protests and rioting in just a moment.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: George Floyd was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, a historic town split evenly between black and white. After some rioting and looting last weekend, the mayor, Mitch Colvin, imposed a curfew. I spoke to him about how he'd been handling the protests.
5: The initial protests, I was actually invited by the organizer to join them. Uh, He gave me an opportunity to address the crowd. It was very moving because I'm an African-American male. I certainly can empathize with the struggles and the the fracture in the relationship between the police and African-Americans, particularly males. And so I made a commitment to that group that they stayed peaceful and that I would be one of the biggest champions for their causes and their concerns.
2: How would you describe the relationships between the police in your city and, and African Americans prior to George Floyd's death?
5: Well, you know, we have had our problems in the past. We've had our issues with uh, what we call driving while black, where We had a significant imbalance of the amount of stops for African-Americans versus others. We've worked hard over the last eight years to really rebuild. We had a couple of police chiefs who understood community policing and the importance of that. We've tried to make transparency at the forefront by adding body cameras to all of our officers. So we've worked hard to build those relationships. And I think right now, some of what we're seeing is a result of the return on that investment that we've made.
2: In your city, you've had a shopping mall, a Walmart, JCPenney that have been looted. It's clearly really important if these protests are going to achieve their aims in terms of police reform to distinguish between legitimate protest and disorder. How do you make sure that people are able to draw that distinction and how are you able to steer these protests in a, in a positive direction?
5: I've I used a tremendous amount of uh, my personal relationship capital, if if lack of a better word, because I grew up here. A lot of the community, they trust me. I am the exact demographic that's having the largest challenge with uh, equality and confrontations with the police. And so I I put it all on the line to tell them that I'll commit to you to being an advocate for the change that you like but you have to commit to me that you will keep the cause at the forefront and not use this as an opportunity to cause mayhem or destruction. I think what happened Saturday night when we had those uh, unfortunate incidents, I think it was some type of systematic organized plan immediately at the end of when the protests were were ending that there were infiltrators who came in who had other intentions. Some of those intentions could have been to, uh, delegitimize the whole reason why the protests were taking place because the next day's headlines focused on the mayhem and not on the mission of the protesters. I think that there were also some small elements of people who wanted to take advantage of the chaos to steal and to uh, take property. You always will have people who want to exploit the situation. I implemented a curfew the next morning that started that evening to clear the streets and to kind of filter out those people who had bad intentions from those people who really wanted to express themselves. Then we allowed areas and a certain boundaries that we put in place for the protesters to come out. And, and some of our community leaders were a part of that, and we'll continue to do that, just so that they know we stand in solidarity that change is necessary. Right now, as a country, we're at a crossroad. That some of the things that have been underlying and some of those issues that have pretty much been swept under the rug and now boiling to the top.
2: You're in charge of a city that's very diverse, 40% African American, about 10% Latino, about 40% white. How do you bring the non-African American citizens along with you? Do you find generally they're receptive to this kind of conversation? Or have you found that they tend to dig their heels in a bit when you bring up questions of systemic racism?
5: There has been some of that. That will be a challenge going forward that uh, some of the white citizens and constituents that I have will not look at this as an attack or an attempt to show the misdeeds of the past. But really, I hope that they will look at it as an opportunity to move us forward. We have to embrace and have the conversation. It's the elephant in the room. You know, um, the market house, the area that was targeted on Saturday with the looting, has been a symbol of controversy for a while. My family was doing a uh, ancestry. My grandmother passed away a couple years ago. She was 97. Her grandfather, his name was Sam uh, Melvin. He and a few of his siblings were actually sold at, at the uh, market house. We were having a discussion in the city to take that symbol off of the logo. It was on all of our vehicles and trash cans and different things. We had a real contentious conversation, but we made a policy decision to remove that as the representation of the city because of our diversity. These are difficult topics being here in the South, but I think the only way we will move forward and turn the page is if we address those things that happened back in Jim Crow and in slavery and figure out how it is that we repair those bridges.
2: I thought it was very interesting to hear what Mayor Colvin had to say, particularly about his family history in Fayetteville, and it's been inspiring to hear so many mayors speak so eloquently this week. There's been a contrast, however, with what's been coming out of the White House. We often tread quite lightly over what President Trump's been up to lately on the podcast, because it feels like there's an awful lot of commentary about that elsewhere, and it's not always that enlightening. However, um, Charlotte, let's start with you. Um, I don't know what to say this week about the president. I mean, the enthusiasm for calling in the National Guard, um, the military, the president's national security advisor, apparently talking about the need to dominate the battle space, president's photo opportunities outside A church in Washington, D.C., where various protesters and and even a priest actually were tear-gassed so that could go ahead. What do you make of it all?
3: Trump's approach to race relations you almost can't make up, in addition to everything that you just outlined, which was all striking. I was interested in an email from the Republican National Committee that tried to point to President Trump's record it was headlined Black Lives Matter and 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 pointing attention to the idea that Trump thinks Black Lives do matter. And the evidence that they gave were him working with Tim Scott, who of course is the only Republican Black senator. And then also that he, within his White House, Jared Kushner, works with Jerron Smith, who's a domestic policy advisor. Jeron Smith is the senior most African-American member of the White House. Of course, a few years ago, Kellyanne Conway couldn't seem to remember his last name, which seemed to me a, a reminder of his position within the broader administration. So I think it's less about are African-American people going to all of a sudden start voting for Trump? And it's much more about can Joe Biden bring African-Americans reliably to the polls? Will this frustration that you see in African American communities result in uh, a swell of turnout for Joe Biden and of course his candidacy is so dependent on the African American vote he will have some problems though as as was alluded to earlier in the podcast that he helped author the 1994 crime bill which did disproportionately impact communities of color he's prone to saying the wrong thing as he did recently in an interview In which he said of course um, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or trump then you ain't black which not surprisingly was not received very well so i think that's the real question it's it's whether biden can build on this in a way that helps convince the black community that he has something to do that will help them
4: before everything shut down i was in south carolina for that state's primary and biden of course won there on the strength of the african american vote and one thing that struck me was the the breadth and depth of relationships that he had built there during Barack Obama's presidency, but also well before that. So I think he's in a, he's in a good place to sort of build on those relationships. People feel they know him. He has to be very careful about, about seeming as though he's taking the vote for granted. I do want to bring up one thing about Donald Trump and race. And that is that when people talk about him, they often get sort of bogged down in the question of whether Donald Trump is a racist or isn't a racist. And I think that's the wrong thing to ask and think about. The more important question for a president or any politician really is, does Donald Trump stir up feelings of racial grievance for political purposes? And there, I don't see how you can conclude that the answer is anything other than yes. And that's what's really dangerous about him, not what he thinks or what's in his heart or what he may believe, but what he does and what he says.
3: With Joe Biden, it's it's really interesting. I think, you know, he did give a speech in Philadelphia that got lost, basically, in all of the furor with the protests and with Trump, um, which is very different, of course, than, than Barack Obama's famous speech that he gave during the campaign on race, which many people now can quote. But I think the real question for Joe Biden and the African-American vote is, um, what exactly are we talking about here when we talk about making change or trying to acknowledge racial injustice, I was struck by statements from the likes of Larry Fink of BlackRock and David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, um, Arvind Krishna of IBM, trying to uh, acknowledge that further discussion needs to, to happen to heal some of the wounds within America. And they talked a lot about racial equality. And I think there is a desire to move beyond platitudes. Um, and police reform, while it's extremely difficult for all of the reasons we just outlined, is in some ways kind of the easiest thing to solve. We know what to do, as John Fassman has written about. We know what reforms can work. And then the real question beyond that, as the mayor of Fayetteville eloquently laid out, beyond persecution by police, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about opportunity zones, which is what Trump wants to talk about. Are we talking about sentencing reform? Are we talking about educational reform? Are we talking about poverty and inequality, universal basic income reparations, the last being, of course, the the trickiest for a candidate like Joe Biden? And so I think for Biden, it will be really interesting to see over the summer and in the fall and the run up to the campaign, how far he's willing to go beyond the general statements that he's made, you know, look at my voting record or talking about school reform. I think that there is a desire to hear much more substantively what Democrats can do for the African American community, because many were disappointed by the Obama years. So I think that's a really crucial question, both politically and substantively for how this important issue continues to evolve.
4: I think Charlotte is exactly right. And I think those sorts of questions, combined with the success of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the primary campaign, really... Implies or sort of paves the way for Joe Biden to run on a far more activist platform than Democrats have run on in many, many years?
2: Well, I suggest that before too long, we devote a podcast episode to policy solutions on racism in America in all areas of life. So the police, which we've talked about a little bit, but there are other areas, you know, residential segregation, persistent poverty, unemployment worse healthcare for African-Americans and and so forth. Because I think you're right, John and Charlotte, quite often the problems are, are easier to describe than the fixes. But I think that's something we'll do soon. Okay, thank you both. Before I let you go, there's a quiz for you. As ever. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about Richard Nixon, who picked Spirou Agnew as his vice president, partly because he thought that Agnew's antagonism to civil rights leaders would appeal to the so-called silent majority of white Americans in 1968. The Economist's obituary of Vice President Agnew, published in 1996, described him as dishonest. It also described how the son of a Greek immigrant from inner city Baltimore reinvented himself as a regular guy from the suburbs. His makeover meant giving up bowling. Which sport did Agnew take up instead?
3: Hmm. Hunting? Was it golf? Mm.
2: It was golf. One point for John (laughs) Fasman. Can I add my
4: my favorite fact about Spiro Agnew is that his name anagrams to grow a penis. (laughs)
2: Let's see if we can get that past the censors. He also (laughs) started attending the Episcopalian church Quote, filled his wardrobe with elegant, sober suits, end quote, and changed his reading habits. What was his chosen publication? Hmm. It was not The Economist. Ah, uh, That was going to be my guess.
3: Was it The National Review? Uh,
4: I think National Review is good. Uh, Sports Illustrated or Golf Digest would be my guess.
2: You almost get half a point for Digest. It was Reader's Digest, John Fasman. So you're clear winner in this week's edition of the quiz. Okay.
3: The idea that becoming an Episcopalian golfer helps win you an election shows how far American politics have evolved.
2: Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. If you subscribe to The Economist radio feed while you're there, you'll find The Economist asks, which this week has an in-depth interview with Valerie Jarrett, who is a top advisor to President Obama.
0: There was this uh, pattern of arresting particularly poor Black people, oftentimes for taillight violations or, you know, running a traffic light. They were unable to make bail, and so they were then incarcerated. And when you're incarcerated in jail while you're waiting, your fees and penalties continue to run. And it was a revenue generator for the city.
2: In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.
0: Planning for your next trip?